just as, as they're making the transition. What a great song. Be Still My Soul. Listen, there, uh, two things that happened today in our singing I just, I just want to draw attention to. Uh, one is it, it doesn't have to be done every Sunday um, necessarily. So, so I don't know where Andy is. Andy, I'm, I'm not, this is not a passive-aggressive suggestion or anything. Uh, it doesn't have to be done every Sunday, but every now and then, just to hear the voices of the church, right? The reason that I think that's valuable and that it's good At the very least, because in Revelation, when you read, and John gives an account of some of the things that he sees and hears when he's in the throne room in God's presence, one of the things that he draws attention to is hearing the voices of myriads upon myriads of God's redeemed singing his praises, shouting his praise, right? That sort of thing. I think when those things happen, when, we, when the, the instruments, I love instruments, right? But from time to time, when those things drop out and when all you hear are our voices, number one, it reminds you that you're not the only one singing, right? There are other people that God has redeemed and brought together with you. And we get, I think, in the best sort of way, some little taste of the things that we're going to enjoy when we're finally in the presence of God. I can't wait. All right. Second, second thing to point out, uh, the last song that we sang, Be Still My Soul, right, almost has sort of a dirge, D-I-R-G-E, like a somber, sullen kind of a sound to it, right, which a lot of times, especially in our American context, we don't have time for that right? We're, we're not a people who like to be sad and reflective, let alone, right, bottom out. We're, we're up and coming. We're all about the future. We're about what's bright and optimistic and everything. But listen, there are people who are here today, this morning, who come in and who need to be able to give voice to the sorrows that they carry into the sanctuary with them. Right? If all that we do as a church are sing songs that are uh, sort of the upbeat, up-tempo, right, sort of a thing where we've got, we've got songs, we've got a category for, for when the sun is shining and the birds are chirping. That's good. We need those songs. But we also recognize, Christians above all else, above all others, should recognize that for all there is to sing about in gratitude to the Lord for what He's done and what He continues to do, there is a lot of sorrow and heaviness to this life, right? We are still looking for better things to come. And so to have songs that the church can sing that articulates the reality of the fact that our faith does not make us immune from sorrow, but that what our faith does, it gives us hope in the midst of sorrow, that is a good thing. There ought to be songs that miserable Christians can sing. (laughs) Right? Because if you're not a miserable Christian today... You will be someday. (laughs) And it will be good for you to have a song like Be Still My Soul that you can refer to. 
Having said that, Genesis chapter 24. Let me tell you, I'm, I'm skipping over. We were in Genesis chapter 22 last week. I'm skipping over chapter 23, which records Sarah's death and burial, not because I'm, I'm going to ignore it, but because I want to come back. I'm going to take Sarah's death and then Abraham's death that's recorded in chapter 25, and I'm going I'm to take them together next Sunday. So, uh, ladies, don't give me a hard time at the end of the service about how I'm ignoring Sarah and, you know, she's the mother of our faith. I'm, I'm not doing that. I'm going to link her and Abraham together next Sunday, but for this Sunday, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 24, and ultimately what we're looking at is the way that God's uh, providence, the way that He cares for His people in providing for the need that they are coming up on. In other words, every new stage of life represents new needs, new challenges, and one of the things that we see in Genesis 24 is that the same God who shows himself to be faithful to Abraham starting all the way back in chapter 12 is going to continue to show himself to be faithful to Abraham as Abraham is looking at the shrinking window of his life expectancy and the need that exists for his son Isaac to get a wife. Right. In this, one of the things that is stressed here in significant ways are the ideas of God's loving kindness and the success that His loving kindness brings about for God's people. So if I were going to take Genesis 24 and try to sum it up in one little short pithy catchphrase or something, I would say something like, His loving kindness is our success. All right, let me show you how that works itself out or how that plays itself out in Genesis chapter 24. Now, breathe a sigh of relief. This is one of the longest, if not the longest chapters in Genesis. I'm not going to read the entire chapter. What I'm going to do, though, I'm going to read down through verse 27 because verse 27 gives us a good sense of what happens in the chapter where Abraham sends a servant to find a bride for Isaac, his son. And then what happens in, in verses 28 and following is the servant painstakingly going through all of the events that happened in the first 27 verses. He's now retelling to the potential in-laws as a way to say, God has done this. Do you see what's going on? So we'll refer to the second half of the chapter, but for our reading purposes, we'll take the first half, verses 1 through 27. And you listen as we read and as you follow along. You want to be listening and looking for signs of God's loving kindness in this episode and the importance of that manifesting itself in the success of this very unique quest that Abraham gives to his servant. So, Genesis chapter 24, verse 1. Now, Abraham was old, advanced in age. And the Lord had blessed Abraham in every way. Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he owned, Please, place your hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I live, 
but you will go to my country and to my relatives and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, suppose the woman is not willing to follow me to this land. Should I take your son back to the land from where you came? Then Abraham said to him, beware that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my birth, and who spoke to me and who swore to me, saying, to your descendants I will give this land, he will send his angel before you, and you will take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this my oath. Only do not take my son back there. So the servant placed his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Verse 10, then the servant took ten camels from the camels of his master and set out with a variety of good things of his master's in hand. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. He made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at evening time, the time when women go out to draw water. He said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, Please grant me success today and show loving kindness to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now may it be that the girl to whom I say, please let down your jar so that I may drink, and who answers, drink, and I will water your camels also. May she be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. And by this, I will know that you have shown loving kindness to my master. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor, came out with her jar on her shoulder. Parenthetically, what are the odds? Verse 16, the girl was very beautiful. Check one box. A virgin. Check another. And no man had had relations with her, and she went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please, let me drink a little water from your jar. And she said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly lowered her jar to her hand and gave him a drink. Now when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw also for your camels until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran back to the well to draw. And she drew for all his camels. Meanwhile, the man was gazing at her in silence to know whether the Lord had made his journey successful or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her wrist weighing ten shekels in gold and said, Whose daughter are you? Please tell me. Is there room for us to lodge in your father's house? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. Again she said to him, We have plenty of both straw and feed and room to lodge in. Then the man bowed low and worshipped the Lord. He said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his loving kindness and his truth toward my master. As for me, the Lord has guided me in the way to the house of my master's brothers. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you that both in seen and in unseen ways, you have worked for our good in any and every situation. Thank you that you are trustworthy. 
and that all that we need you have and you will provide because your son has bought us and made us your own and your spirit testifies with our spirits that we are your children. Help us to see in fresh ways how you work on behalf of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. His loving kindness is our success. I'm going to try to break down particularly the section that we just read into, into two major points. One, we want to look at Abraham's confidence when he charges his servant or gives his servant this unique task to find a bride for his son. And then second, we want to look at the servant's success, how that success came about. How did the servant know when he had, had, fet, had found or achieved success? But before we do that, let me, let me give uh, just something of a disclaimer about the biblical theolo- theological way that we might interpret a passage like this because of some of the, um, I don't know, some of the, the tendencies that we have when we read a passage like this. In a passage like Genesis 24 where God does uh, just a unique work particularly in what seems to be a very relevant, practical need. A guy needs a wife. God secures a wife, puts young available woman with young available man, and the two are happily married till death do they part. That's a pursuit that happens even today. That represents a need or a situation that we often, depending on our station in life, can find ourselves in, or we know others who are in it, or have been in it, so on and so forth. So anytime we find, particularly, a situation where we readily identify with the need that's being represented in the passage, our ears perk up, our eyes get very alert, and we say, okay, let's see how the Lord works in this situation, and how He works in this situation is how I can expect that He will work with me. Not so. Young men, if you go to the food court waiting for a certain young lady and you say, now, Lord, may it be that the woman who offers, me to, share, offers to share her drink would also buy me lunch. <laughs> and that's your way of finding a bride. I got news for you. You're probably going to be sorely disappointed. Okay? Young ladies, if you think that by buying a meal for a guy, you're going to find yourself a good husband, I have news for you, probably not going to work out that way, okay? Here's the point. This ought to be seen not as the ordinary way that God works, but as an extraordinary way that God works. And the reason that this is extraordinary is because... Isaac has to find a wife in order for the covenant promises to remain active and viable. In the same way, in Genesis 22, last week, when we looked at the prospect of Abraham offering up his son on the altar and losing his son to death, the tension that was there is, well, how can Isaac be killed if it's through Isaac that God is going to fulfill his promises. That tension is there. So Isaac is saved, whether by direct intervention or Abraham thought, even if God has to resurrect him from the ashes of a burnt offering, he can do that because it has to be that Isaac lives. 
in order for Abraham to have many descendants, his first descendant, Isaac, must himself have his own descendants, right? You see how this works? And in order for descendants to come from Isaac, Isaac needs a wife. If we have any minors in here, see your parents after the service. The reason that God works in an extraordinary way in Genesis chapter 24 is precisely because His covenant is at stake. God's Word is hanging in the balance. Therefore, God is showing Abraham and Isaac and ultimately us now this morning as we read, is showing us that when it comes to the Word of God, when it comes to the promises and the assurances that He has given us, there is nothing too difficult for the Lord to do, whether it's in miraculously bringing forth a child from a barren womb or miraculously matching up this woman with this man to be married. That's what it takes in order for God to make good on God does not call someone like Abraham to himself, bind himself to Abraham by covenant, by promises, and then send Abraham out on his way and say, now let me know how all this works out for you. Because this is God's work, God is the one who sees to it that every need that Abraham has will ultimately be fulfilled. Now, practically speaking, what that means is this. When you look at this passage and you're looking to make application for yourself, the first thing that you ought to consider is what is a first concern in the passage itself, which is, this is God's providential care for His people in fulfilling His promises to them. Therefore, when I look at the way that God is going to providentially care for me or care for you, the first thing that I want to do, I want to look and say, what has God promised me? There are tremendous things that God has promised me that He must providentially work out in my daily life. I find those in Scripture. There are also lots of things that I would like to see His providence provide for me that He has not promised me. Therefore, I do not have a rightful expectation that He will give me those things. So, just one tension that runs from this passage to our application. Isaac must have a wife in order for God's promises to be fulfilled. Jonathan Merritt has not been promised anything like that. I have not been promised a wife. I have a wife. I'm glad that I have a wife. Tremendous gift and blessing. But the promises that God has made to me are bigger than something that is as good as marriage itself. God has promised to provide for my every need. He has not promised how those needs will be met in the sense that I can expect to get a job that is going to give me a six-figure salary. That's not what I'm getting here, by the way. All right? (laughs) Nowhere close. God has not promised that. 
So when I look at the way that God is going to work, how God is going to demonstrate His providential care and attention to me, the first thing that I want to do is I want to go to God's Word and I want to say, what has God of His own free will promised to give me or to do for me? And those are the things that I'm going to be rock-solid confident that He is going to do and fulfill. Even if I don't know how, I can say, God promised that He would do this, therefore I know that He will. Whether He does it instantaneously or whether He does it over a process of time, I don't know, but this is the assurance that I have. And then secondarily, I do want to look and say, okay, God has given, apart from very specific promises, He has given us general words of comfort and consolation about other lesser things like the need for food and clothing. I can be confident that He will care for me in those ways also, but I just don't want to run the risk of saying that what God does in an extraordinary setting here in chapter 24 is what I should expect to see happening every day of my life. That's not the way that God works. One more thing before we actually get to the text itself. Be careful, however, that you don't run to the other end of the spectrum and say that therefore because I have not seen God do something that borders on the miraculous in providing for me, He must not do miraculous things for me. The very fact that you and I continue to draw breath right now at 11.32 on Sunday morning is a sign of God's providential care of you and I. That your heart continues to beat, that you had food to put in your mouth, that you are clothed when you come in here, and any number of other things... God provides for us in ways that oftentimes we don't even recognize or see. But He still does it. And He's good to do it. So just because the ordinary way that God provides is the general way that He does it, does not mean that He is not uniquely intervening in your life in a myriad of ways, many of which you don't even see or recognize. That's just how good and how gracious He is. So, having said all that, God's providence leads to the success of His people for the sake of His covenant in Genesis chapter 24. We're going to start with Abraham's confidence. Before we even get to Abraham's confidence, notice the way that Abraham, in charging his servant to go find a wife for his son, the way that he sets conditions on what his servant may or may not do. Abraham goes to his servant, and he says in the opening verses that he needs to find a wife for his son. But he tells him in verse 3, you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live. That was a, a significant pull 
of available candidates that he's just ruled out, out of hand. He could have easily have gone to his servant and said, go find a wife for my son. Servant would have said, give me a day or two, I'll be back. Traipses along through the hills, finds a suitable one, brings her back, case closed. Nope, can't do that. You can't take a woman from the Canaanites. You can't look in this neighborhood or in this school district to find a wife for my son. You're going to have to work for this servant. You're going to have to travel hundreds of miles and track down my family in order to begin to look, begin to look for a wife for my son. Why would he do that? I'm sure there are plenty of attractive Canaanite women that could have been found. But there are probably at least two reasons that he puts this first restriction on his servant. Number one is, first and foremost, because Abraham has been called into a unique, exclusive relationship with the Lord, and the Canaanites do not enjoy that relationship. They are given to any number of other things. They are not on the same spiritual ground. Abraham recognizes the fact that it would not be good and wise to take my son who has to devote himself to Yahweh alone and to pair him with a wife who is not going to share that same devotion. Therefore, you can't pick one of the women around here. You have to go find a woman who's going to share some form of commonality with us. Secondly, it would be a little bit odd if in light of the fact that God has already told Abraham, number one, you are going to possess this land, I'm going to judge the inhabitants of this land, and dispossess them, it would be odd for God or for Abraham to provide a wife for his son Isaac from a woman to share in the possession that God intends to dispossess her of. Do you, you get what we're saying? God is going to take her and her family out of the land, remove it from them. Why then would you bring her in so that the person who's supposed to be dispossessed turns out to possess the very thing that God is removing. Now, having said all of that, the interesting thing is, is that when you look in Genesis 24, there is no indication that the Lord told Abraham to do this. As a matter of fact, this is one of the rare chapters in Genesis where God is, for all intents and purposes, silent. God does not start this episode off by appearing to Abraham. God does not appear to the servant later on in the chapter. God is very silent. God is even unseen, if you will. Nevertheless, as we'll see later, very much working behind the scenes in evident, obvious ways. So if the Lord has not given Abraham these instructions, these conditions, where does Abraham get them from? I'm, I'm not going to die on this hill, but let me tell you where I think Abraham gets it from. I think Abraham is a Psalm 1 kind of man. Contrasting the walk of the wicked, 
Psalm 1-2, but his delight is day and night. Here's what I think is going on. I think Abraham knows full well what the black and white stated promises and objectives of the covenant are. But I think Abraham, like someone who has been growing in his knowledge of the Lord, has spent time thinking and reviewing and rehearsing what God has said and what God has done so that Abraham not only thinks about the explicit provisions applications as well. Listen, who grow in our ability to pour through the says the Lord, but then also to be able to move from chapter and verse and say, and here's how or here's why this passage of Scripture or these truths in Scripture, here's how it applies to where we are in our present day setting. So, you're hard-pressed to find in Scripture discussions about some of the societal or cultural hot-button topics that we deal with today. True? Let's just take one, pull one out of the hat. Fertility issues. Anyone know chapter and verse that you can go to where the Lord talks about how to deal with infertility? No? Oh, well, I guess the Lord must not care about infertility. Or, is it possible that although explicitly we don't have God revealing to us a cut-and-paste answer to some of the things that we deal with, it is possible for us to take what God has revealed, to meditate, to think, and to say, in light of what God has revealed here, I think this seems to be how we ought to understand this issue by extension. I think that's what Abraham is doing here. He's thinking through the ramifications of the covenant, and he is trying to faithfully live day by day the realities of those covenant promises facing situations that he did not anticipate having to deal with. You and I will face that same, we do face that same thing every day. We have things that have been made abundantly clear to us in God's Word. But there are thousands of things that we face in the course of a day, a month, a year, where God has not spoken explicitly to those things. We ought not be the kind of people who then say, because we don't have a chapter and verse, God has nothing to say, or God has no way to shape our perspective on this particular issue. So then Abraham moves to the charge that he gives to the servant. And here's the confidence on display that Abraham gives. He says to the servant, you're not going to take a woman from here, and you're not, whatever you do, you're not going to take my son out of the promised land. This is where God has promised to work. He must stay here. And then Abraham says, so if you find a woman that is not willing to come back with you, all bets are off. Look, though, skip down to verse 7. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my birth, who spoke to me and who swore to me, saying, to your descendants I will give this land, 
He will send his angel before you, and you will take a wife for my son from there. That sounds pretty confident. God is going to do what God needs to do so that you will successfully find a woman to bring back for Isaac to marry. But then notice what he says in the very next breath, verse 8. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this my oath, only do not take my son back there. What in the world is that about? Do you, do you, you hear what's going on? In the first breath, Abraham says, oh, no worries, God's going to take care of all this. He's going to send his messenger ahead of you. He's going to order your steps. He's going to provide the woman. You will find the woman that my son is to marry. Period. And then in the next breath he says, but if you can't find a woman who's willing to come back with you, then it's okay, don't worry about it. Doesn't that sound like Abraham speaking out of both sides of his mouth? Well, Abraham, is he going to find a wife that he can bring back, or is he not going to find a wife that he can bring back? And here, I think, is a great lesson that we see from Abraham. Abraham, because he knows that a wife for Isaac is essential to the continuation of God's promises, Abraham is confident that God will provide a wife for Isaac. However, although Abraham is confident, he is not in control. God will make it possible for Isaac to marry and to have his own sons and daughters to keep the line going so that the promises stand. I think that this is the way that we ought to secure a wife for Isaac, but... Who am I to say if this is the way it will actually play out? Maybe you travel all these hundreds and hundreds of miles and it turns out to be a wasted expedition and you come back empty-handed. But see, here's the thing. Because Abraham knows that Isaac needs a wife, he knows that God will provide. He just doesn't know how God will provide. Therefore, he can confidently say, on the one hand, God will find a woman for my son. And then on the other hand say, but I don't know how that's going to play out. Maybe this is not the way it's going to be fulfilled. We just don't have the luxury of being able to tell God confidently that he's got to do it our way. Okay, God, you promised that you would sanctify me and make me like your son. Here's the deal. I've got a number of impurities in my life that I deal with that don't look like your son that you said you were going to deal with. So I'll tell you what you're going to do. You're just going to wave your majestic hand over my life and you're going to take these things from me and I'll just go sailing off into the sunset singing your praises. I can be confident that God is going to sanctify me, right? He's promised to do so. I don't know how He is going to do that 
to get me from point A to point B, and neither do you. It may very well be that God in His grace and mercy decides to miraculously remove from me a certain sin or weakness or temptation or provide for me a particular need that has been causing me to doubt or to lose faith. He may do that. He can do that. But what if He doesn't? Let God be God. He's still going to provide, but He'll do it His way. This is the confidence that Abraham has, that for any good thing that is necessary for God's people, God will give it. This same idea is communicated by Paul in Romans chapter 8 when he makes this statement, he who offered up his only son, how will he not with him freely give us all things. Do you hear that? The point that Paul is making in Romans 8 is, if God has given what is already the most costly gift and provision that His people need, why would He not then also follow that up by giving all of the tag-along things that are necessary? It'd be like a father giving a brand new car to his son to show his love and kindness, when his son gets in, he goes to crank it and the keys are not in the ignition. And he turns and he looks and he asks his father and the father says, sorry son, you're going to have to take care of that yourself. No. The keys come with the car. The other lesser things come with Christ, and God is happy to provide those things for us just in the way that He sees fit. So we skip to the servant now, and we'll do this in shorter order. The servant's success. Notice one of the things that stands out or ought to stand out to us is that the servant comes, he's coming sight unseen to this location to try to find a needle in a haystack. How's he going to do that? The only way that he can do that is if God intervenes and does something to put him on the right path. So the servant says, okay, Lord, I'm asking that because of the kindness that you have shown to Abraham, that you would let that trickle down to my quest now and let it be done this way. And he, he gives a thing. Let the woman who comes out who gives me a drink also give my camels a drink. That's a lot of water. Anyone know how, how much a camel can drink? <laughs> Someone said a lot. Yeah, I, yeah we know a lot. <laughs> no, a lot. 30 gallons, maybe, of water. And there are 10 camels after a long journey, and she's going to go back and forth from the spring to the camel trough. That's a, that's a lot of work to be done. That's the test. So he goes there. So the, a woman comes out. She looks like she could fit the bill. He goes, he approaches, hey, could I have some water to drink? And she says, miraculously, 
sure, I'll give you some water, and why don't you let me feed your, or water your ten camels? Verse 21 says that while she is going back and forth from the spring to the camel, spring to camel, spring to camel, spring to camel, for who knows how long a period of time, what is Abraham's servant doing in verse 21? He's looking at her to see if the Lord had made him successful or not. Guy, what more do you have to ask? She's watering your camels. You are successful, aren't you? But notice, does the mere fact that she is willing to share her water with him and then water her camels. Does that meet the requirements that Abraham had given to him? What are the requirements that Abraham had given to him? She has to be someone from our household. This is a tremendous coincidence. If I were the servant, I'm done. We're good. Let's go. We're out. We're heading back. My job is done. I don't need any other evidence. Notice, though, he is watching and still waiting to find out if this is the woman, even though she has That's a pretty strong sign of confirmation, and yet he's still waiting to get specifics. Christians... Please, please, do not try to discern God's will and work and ways for your life based on whims and based on fleeting feelings or impulses that come into your head or your heart. Don't trust them. It may be that a certain impulse or a certain coincidence is an indication that the Lord is directing you in a certain way. But don't, don't let that be the end-all, be-all test of how God is working. If you can't take the seemingly random circumstances of life and tether it or tie it directly to Scripture in some way... I don't care how big of a coincidence it is, you ought to be very cautious before you get the confidence to say, this is God who is doing this. This man had the great opportunity to do that. He prayed and asked the Lord very specifically that God would do this, and it was done. And even still, he was not willing to say, mission accomplished. So after he's done, he asked the girl, so who are you? Skip ahead, verses 24 and following. She tells him who she is. He now hears for the first time that she actually is from Abraham's family line. And notice the way that he responds in verse 26. The man bowed low and worshipped the Lord. And he says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his loving kindness and his truth toward my master 
As for me, he has guided me in the way to the house of my master's brothers. Now, let me ask you a question. Has the servant found ultimate success in verse 27? Okay, some of you are saying no, and that's the correct answer. She passed this random sign. He still had not found ultimate success. She answers that she is from the right family, the right kind of household. That's another sign that that he can check off. But has he met with ultimate success? What's the last thing that has to happen in order for him to know that he has been successful in his quest? She has to be willing to go. We don't have time to walk through this, but let me fast forward and give you the, the synopsis. He goes back to, to Rebecca's house. He tells her family everything that's just happened. And skip down with me later on in the chapter to verse 50. They hear the story, and Laban and Bethuel replied, The matter comes from the Lord, so we cannot speak to you bad or good. Here is Rebekah before you. Take her and go. And let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. And then verse 52, what does the servant do when he hears that statement? He does the same thing then that he did when he heard the statement from Rebekah. He bows low and he worships. I think this is a way for the author to tell us or to signify to us that just as important as hearing who Rebecca's family was from her own lips, it was also just as important for the servant to hear that she would be able to go back with him. And not until he heard all of the details being satisfied was he able to know that God had granted him success. He is not willing to cut corners. He is not willing to assume that two out of three is good enough. And all the way through this this scene, this episode, what the servant continues to do over and over again, some three or four times, the servant is found praying for success. Another three or four times, you have the word loving kindness showing up. And always to the same end, Lord, on behalf of the loving kindness that you have shown to Abraham, would you grant me success? Because God is certain to fulfill his promises to his people, he is able to do whatever it takes. If it takes enabling this servant to find a needle in a haystack, he can make that happen. If it takes working on, on the spot a change of heart and mind so that these people say, sure, our daughter, our sister can go back with you. And Rebecca to say, sure, I'll go back. If it takes that kind of a change of heart, God can do that too. In Proverbs 21 we're told that the king's heart are like channels of water. The Lord turns it wherever he wants. 
men as powerful and self-contained as a king. He can do it for you and he can do it for me. Proverbs also says, the lot, the dice, is cast into the lap. But it's every decision is from the Lord. Even the random occurrences of our life are not so random that God's care and providence is not involved. So listen, let me close this way. Going back to be still my soul. Let me just say a special word to, to some of you in here who are struggling with significant issues right now, whether it be things like a diagnosis uh, related to health, whether it be family breakdowns or uh, uncertainty with employment or emotional struggles, whatever it is. All right. Do understand that God in His grace and kindness is able to provide for whatever it is that you need. And it's okay to ask Him to do that. But, but, do be aware of the fact that because God is good and kind, He will give you anything and everything that you need as His child if He withholds something from you it has to be because you ultimately don't need it. It is not because God is put out with you. It is not because God is turning His back on you and letting you wallow in your misery and in your suffering. But that God is doing for you in your weakness, in your time of suffering, in your doubt, He is doing for you exactly what He did for Abraham in Genesis 24, he is showing and he is demonstrating day by day, bit by bit, that he can be trusted to provide for what it is that you need in that moment. If it's something big, he can give that to you. If it's something small, he's got that covered as well. His mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness to us. Let's pray. Father, we need to know with certainty that you are for us and not against us. And you have already made that abundantly clear because you have offered up your own son to reconcile us to yourself even while we were sinners, while we were still hostile to you. You provided the means and the payment by which we could be bought out of our hostility and restored to a right relationship with you. Father, you know that although we have been redeemed and although we are being renewed and saved day by day, that we still live in a fallen and broken world. We still live and exist in these human bodies by nature with bodies and minds and emotions that don't work the way that they ought to. We're in constant need of a daily supply of food and clothing, of guidance and direction. Father, help us to be mindful of the fact that because you have already done what is most important, we can then be confident that you will provide for every other need that we have. If you have given to us what is of ultimate value and infinite worth, you are willing to give to us what is of lesser value. 
And Father, for those who are here who are uniquely struggling with things that only you can know, I ask that you would assure them of your favor to them, that you would let them know and remind them that your loving kindness is new every morning, that you are with them, and that you are with them as they travel this particular path in life, and that all that they need will be provided, and anything that is withheld is something that they can do without because they have Jesus. We thank you for this time, and it's in the name of your Son that we pray. Amen. Angie's going to close us with one last song. Alan Adams, one of our elders, is going to be at the door to greet you as, uh, as you leave. I'm going to remain down here at the front over here on the Oregon side. If you have any questions about the church, if you have any questions about what it means to know for certain that God is for you and not against you, even down to the way that he providentially cares for you on a daily basis, if you have anything else you want to talk about, of, about anything, I'll be here. I'm not running away. You don't have to worry about holding up a line. Come see me up front here. In the meantime, though, I pray that you would go out and that you would move through this week confident that both in seen and unseen ways, God is being faithful to you according to every need that comes your way. Andy. Would you stand as we sing one last song of praise? Dismissed.